Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains discussions around sexual violence against children. More specifically, it contains references to the murder of Daniel Morecambe. Before we start, I'd encourage anyone listening to please visit danielmorecambe.com.au and learn more about the Daniel Morecambe Foundation. The Foundation provides personal child safety education to children and young people to prevent abuse and promote lifelong health and well-being. They support educators, parents and carers through the provision of resources and education and also directly support young victim survivors of crime. Welcome to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week, how the way we walk and how the forensics of footwear can help solve crimes. Things like the angle and the base, the planting of the foot changes based on velocity. And so you're able to then calculate what speed was the person moving when they exited the crime scene. Dr Paul Bennett is a forensic podiatrist with a particular talent for identifying patterns left behind in footprints. His knowledge and expertise have assisted police in decoding evidence from crime scenes across Australia, including several high-profile cases. I got a call from QPS, Queensland Police Service, and they said, Paul, um, there's a particularly high-profile matter. Would you be available to come into QPS for the purposes of uh, attempted identification of the footwear? The work that Paul undertook for one of those cases the murder of 13-year-old Daniel Morecambe is the topic of today's episode. It's the early 2000s on the Sunshine Coast. That's where we begin the conversation with Paul. Daniel was a young teenage boy who around uh, Christmas time, in the lead up to Christmas, around 2000, was uh, going into the Sunshine Coast and he was waiting at an underpass for the highway there near uh, an area called Birawa in Queensland. And Daniel never returned home from that planned trip. It created an enormous amount of concern within Queensland about this young missing boy. The matter was well investigated by the local authorities and a number of suspects were identified early in the case. The forensic evidence that was available at the time was inconclusive in advancing the matter. So the case basically set unsolved for many, many years. And it was only through the diligence, hard work and commitment of Daniel's parents that they advanced the case to a formal inquiry. And that gave authorities broader powers to investigate in more detail. 
As the story progressed, it enabled the police to identify an area in um, southeast Queensland where Daniel's remains may have been located. This uh, initiated a major search in the forest and the clock was basically ticking because they knew this had been unsolved for many, many, many years. And if the probability of recovering any evidence was quite limited. But it was through the incredible hard work of the SES officers on their hands and knees, shoulder to shoulder, combing through the bush in the mud. The first trace they got was a left shoe called a globe skate shoe. And you can imagine the reaction that the investigators had. Uh, It was really spine chilling to have recovered the shoe. That evening, I got a call from QPS, Queensland Police Service, and they said, Paul, um, there's a particularly high profile matter that's going forward. Would you be available to come into QPS for the purposes of uh, attempted identification of the footwear? And um, I went in late that evening and indicated that we'll have a look at it. It was in a, in a hermetically sealed area where no DNA could be transferred. You were gloved and gowned and um, you, they presented the, the footwear. And it was pretty chilling to see. But from initial examination, you could identify some pretty unique wear patterns. So the analytical approach is in the first instance to look for things called class characteristics which means size, shape, make, the kind of thing you would think about when you went in and purchased a pair of footwear. The second thing you then proceed to do is look for um, unique identifiers. Has the load in the shoe been deformed due to a particular characteristic? And it became quite evident that that was the case in the Daniel Morecambe matter. And I indicated to the investigating officers, because it's only one shoe, there's a certain probability you can proportion to that. However, as we know, in the majority of cases, the human gait is the interaction between both limbs. And they continued the investigation and were able to recover the second shoe. This is prior to them identifying the only 17 bones that actually remained. And they were obviously in a fairly decomposed state. So there was real concern that they would not be able to extract adequate DNA from the remains when they found them subsequent to the footwear. So what actual physical state was the shoe in? In a poor state, it had been submerged in mud and gone through two floods in that southeast Queensland area the area of the creek where the riverbank where the footwear was recovered from. Um, you can imagine if you left your pair of shoes out for, for that length of time in mud. So they came out and there were certain things recovered from inside the shoe that could only have ever been there had, had the footwear been in the environment for a long period of time. We were very careful to remove the dirt from the shoe so that we could analyse the patterns. 
they were more robust than they were fragile. So surprisingly, they, they were, um, you could handle them without any degradation to the actual quality of the shoe. You had to be careful. But um, I was using little anatomical probes to remove bits of dirt as we went down and um, exposing what it was we needed to look at. When you're examining the shoe, are you looking at solely the tread and the sole of the shoe and the wear and tear, or are you looking at the insole as well? There is a really set process that I would always go through. It's almost like a checklist where you start with the upper, outer. So you're physically looking at the top of the shoe. For things like crease marks, where the ball of the foot might flex with the toes that leaves a pattern on the top of the shoe, you may look for wear patterns where the tendo Achilles, the main tendon at the back of the leg, runs down inside the shoe. Uh, So you're looking for wear patterns at that area. If there was, say, particular splaying of the foot, so the front of the foot was wider than uh, that deformed the shoe over time, you're looking at the bulges at the top, and so forth and so on. So um, you then go to the inside of the upper using mirrors and lights and, where necessary, cameras to look at the pattern inside the shoe on the upper. And then you do that around all of the walls of the shoe, the lateral, the outside, the medial, inside, anterior and posterior. So you are taking a very systematic approach and that's adopted with all of the cases. So you're kind of using a pro forma. You will then take the insole out if it's removable and then you analyze the top of the insole before you flip the insole over and analyze the bottom of the insole because often the material used is ethyl vinyl acetate or EVA which is designed depending on its geometry and its its density to absorb these forces that are going through the human structure by the time you've done that you then look at the inside of the upper with the outsole removed And this is where you'll see the stitching. So the stitching responds more to, say, transverse stress. This is rotational movement that will pull stitching in a particular direction. And that gives you an idea of transverse rotation within the limb. By the time you've done that, you finally get to the outsole and the planter. And perhaps the best way to describe this is if you think of a symphony orchestra, it's composed of between 50 and 80 instruments. Now, the human mechanics of the lower extremity has a similar number of muscles and even more ligaments and tendons. These typically work in a unified, coordinated manner. But like any sonnet, there is variation depending on who is the composer. So when you take a systematic approach, you're basically looking at each different instrument's contribution to the overall performance. And that allows you, based on data that's been collected, um, not only at our university, but international databases, to start doing comparative work on uh, who's contributing what to the sound that we see. In terms of identifying this particular person with this particular shoe, 
How do you do that? A question you asked earlier, which was really important, was what was the environmental condition like of the footwear when it was recovered from the crime scene? Once we'd established the prima facie evidence, I indicated to QPS, look, you'll have to approach the family for comparative footwear. And the family produced four pairs of footwear, some black Clark's styled school shoes, and amazingly, two other pairs of highly comparable globe skate shoes. Now, the really interesting thing about this is the three pairs of skate shoes, the ones recovered from the crime scene, an older pair that Daniel had owned prior to the disappearance, and a newer pair that were recovered uh, from the parents, showed you actually a timeline of the wear. So you could actually look at when something had been highly used, how did the wear patterns vary from when they had moderate or light use? So if you think of dropping a pebble into a water pond and you see a ripple, over time the ripple amplifies. So you're actually able to sequentially look at how much use those shoes had with that particular symphony orchestra playing. And that even put higher precision on the analysis. So in terms of your findings with this shoe and these shoes that were found in the environment after all this time, what did you conclude? That there was a high probability that the police were in the right location based on physical evidence. They had a good idea roughly of where things were and how floods and, uh, and other information had come to light about where um, Daniel's remains may have been. They were able to focus their efforts uh, more precisely in that, in that location and they were obviously concerned that they may or may not find anatomical remains. And uh, it was just through the diligence of QPS that they were then able to find some of the larger bones, which had had reduced over time. And then uh, I believe they were able to extract maternal DNA, even over that period of time. There were charges and a conviction made in that case. How did you feel when you pretty much learnt that your evidence was critical and very important in gaining a conviction. Did it matter to you? Um, the There's an immediate sense of empathy when you get the fuller picture of what's going on and to see the... Um, and to feel the, the Morecambe's distress, uh, it can't help but impact on you. And the sadness is you see this more often than you perhaps would like to. Um, rarely during the time in a witness box would I spend any time looking at the accused. Um, I'm pretty focused on making sure the evidence is presented in such a clear way that the jury um, has an understanding of what could be a complicated matter and keeping it quite simple. So you're pretty focused, but I would say there's a period of time after that you are, you ruminate 
um, over the circumstances, particularly when children are involved and this is not unique. There was another case that you were involved in, Michael Go. Can you talk about that and how what you had to examine was very, very different from the example of the shoe in the Daniel Morecambe case? The Michael Go matter involved a, a Mr Savick in Sydney. And the context to this is the two men were involved in an intimate relationship and Mr Go uh, owned an antique shop in in a Sydney. And as you can imagine, a collection of antiques over a long period of time in a fairly narrow, almost alleyway-like shop was full of clutter. Old television sets, mannequin dolls, jewellery, mirrors with intricate um, framing and clothes. And the circumstance of the matter was there was an escalation in behaviour between the two men. It resulted in Mr Savick beating to death Mr Go. As you're aware, the body contains maybe five litres of blood. So when you have a significant head injury, it's not uncommon to bleed out at least three, perhaps a little more than that, depending on the nature of the injury. And scalp's very, very well supplied with blood, which is why it bleeds so much. Absolutely. And um, if you can imagine large objects, multiple blows to the head, you know, you get your typical arterial spray, which, you know, sprays it up on the walls, sprays it on the roof sprays it on the clothes, sprays it on the mirrors, on the mannequin, just about everywhere. So uh, the evidence that was put forward at the time, they asked, they said, look, we're looking, there are a number of suspects, um, there are a number of stories going here, but we've got some series of bloodied prints that are from the front of the shop to the back of the shop where the assault occurred at the back of the shop. So we're looking at a couple of things in terms of the timing of the prints and the amount of superimposition. So you can imagine if a highly trafficked area, you'll have prints perhaps going in one direction that then are superimposed upon when the offender is going in a different direction. You're talking about shoe prints here? Interestingly, this was barefoot. Okay. Yep. It's um, surprising the proportion of cases that actually um, require barefoot analysis. And there was, as I indicated before, there was a level of intimacy between the two. And so this is, was part of a sexual fetish thing that happened. And so there was nakedness and, and so forth, um, which is all part of, you know, the backstory to the context. And, um, you know, this is not the first or the only sexual offence I've been involved in. You know, there's been cases of young women raped digitally with feet. And so you're having to go in and do anatomical analysis on suspects for the rape victims. Um, So that was a similar context here. Um, Sexual frenzied attack of a lover. 
And, you know, that just escalated the environment. Anyway, we were able to go through and look at the bloodied prints, uh, identify the suspect, compile uh, two-dimensional imaging, three-dimensional imaging of, of the suspect's prints, basically do an overlay match that showed the sequence of when events occurred. So from the back of the, the assault location, the offender had moved to the front to make sure that the windows and everything were closed. And so you get a lightning, or, you know, a lesser impression as the person moves around until they move back into the bloodied crime scene. And by this time, the blood's not fully coagulated. So you'll get secondary and tertiary patterns forming, which is what we were able to do. And then the investigating officers are able to um, put evidence that contradicts the statement of the offender. And in a good proportion of these cases, when the evidence builds against the individual, uh, it's a case of mea culpa. You know, they will just put their hand up and say, that's it. You know, I'm pleading guilty, which is what happened in this case. So what can you actually tell from a bloodied footprint? What can you tell about the person whose foot made that print? It's dependent on anatomical variability and environmental factors. So, for example, we've analysed bloodied or bleached footprints that are in carpet. So you have a different coefficient of friction on a softer surface. If it's on a marble tiled surface, there are known parameters that the foot will behave. For example, it'll be up to 15% longer uh, on a hard surface because of the coefficient of friction. If you're in a softer surface, such as sand, dirt, or clay, the foot will hit the soft surface, glide forward. That's at the heel contact phase of gait. As the forefoot loads, you go to mid-stance, which is when the arch forms of the foot. Then the, the plantar fascia and the ligaments and the muscles contract, and so the shape of the foot changes during propulsion. So there's certain information you can glean from those kinds of impressions. For example, we would scan them with a 3D scanner and reproduce the pressure pattern. Then we will say, um, as was the case with Leonard John Fraser, we're able to isolate down his pressure pattern that really highly uniquely identify him. He was a serial killer here in Queensland. And I think we were down to get it um, around 1% or 2% of the population. And that was based on a database we developed at the university. And even going back to the Daniel Morecambe case, we went to the ECA, that's the exhibition, the, the, the annual um, country fair, big fair in Brisbane, and we got over 2,000 volunteers from the general public coming into the police stand at the ECA, and we footprinted them to build these databases to make these kinds of comparisons and put some statistics. That was the matter in the Daniel Morecambe case. And so we had pre-existing evidence in the soft sand cases uh, where we were able to isolate it right down using three-dimensional scanning. What information were you gathering when at that stand? Were you gathering height, weight, size, width of foot? Were you comparing those feet um, on, say, a solid, a solid board compared to something softer? So um, in the Queensland Ecker Fair, we were collecting 
demographic biological data on ethnicity, gender, size, weight, and then footprint um, to build this local database. That's the kind of rigor that goes on in the background. Because any of the evidence you present in court is obviously opinion based on what fact you're able to identify. So the more substantive it is, because people had this notion around DNA, you know, and probabilities of one in a billion and so forth. So you have to present the evidence without overstating the fact. You really have to stay within the limits of the science. I suppose most people would be aware that there are shoe shops. When you go to buy shoes, there are certain athletic shoe shops that actually make you stand on a plate And from there, you can actually, it's like inking your feet and putting them on a piece of paper. You can actually see where you're, if you've got a good arch or if you're flat footed, um, where you are tending to put most of your weight, if you roll your feet in, like someone who's knock kneed might do. Um, Is that the sort of information that is helpful to you? At a very rudimentary level, you're absolutely right. But that gets back to the kind of class characteristics we were talking about before. Size, shape, length, width. Um, And some of the technology looks quite impressive in terms of um, load distribution and imagery in that regard. So it definitely does help with improving fit, but it's not advanced to the level that you could really present in a court of law. So things like reliability of the testing technique repeatability, validity, you know, all those basic tenets of scientific inquiry need to be observed. And you need to be able to show the literature that says, well, if Joe was leaning forward at the time the pressure was produced, how much was he leaning forward and what evidence is there? So in answer to the question, at a rudimentary level for population work on buying good shoes, it's fine. How... Can you differentiate, though, if somebody is dragging a body, their, their foot pattern is going, their, their gait pattern, their walking pattern is going to be very different if they're carrying a heavy backpack or they're trying to carry a body like a fire hold type thing, they're carrying a weight, surely their footprint is going to be different and so will the width of their gait, how big a steps or how small a steps they're taking. Absolutely. And you might recall when we initially spoke about the rigor of the analysis of the shoe, how you have a stepwise approach, you know, there's a a formula that you follow. Likewise, for anatomical variability, um, you are looking for things. So, for example, one case I worked on, um, it was a cold case. So the evidence at the crime scene was old. The individual involved in the matter had been involved in a motor vehicle accident and broken his knee. So, Kathy, the kind of questions you're asking exactly what the defence lawyers were asking me on the stand. Hey, listen, this guy broke his knee in a car accident. Surely his gait has changed, you know, and so forth and so on. What was really interesting um, is the the evidence, while you take that into consideration, the way you're your, your cerebellum and your um, cortex and your motor coordination works produces a thing called a preferred movement pathway. So it's a repetitive pattern that you establish from the initial evidence. 
then you look at, we had to subpoena the medical records from the car accident, look how much damage and what was done and what repair was done to the knee. And in essence, it was a good orthopedic repair. So his um, preferred movement pathway was unaffected by the accident. So we were able to clear that. We could kind of foresee this is the kind of questions people would be asking in a court of law. And if there's a body or a weight, you know, there's typically, and this is again the scenes of crime officers' responsibility, to look for peripheral evidence. So I'm looking for drag marks. Well, not me personally, but the investigators look for drag marks or um, good ones when they go out of a window and they jump. So, you know, they've then landed in soft soil and then they've tried to disguise their exit. And uh, we've seen this before where they staged the crime scene. They actually use different people's shoes in the blood through the middle. Then they go out the window and the perpetrator across the garden. And so you can clearly see there's an attempt to obscure the nature of the evidence. But of course, they're going to say, well, what, what kind of force impact was there? That, that doesn't look like a walking gate. That's a running gate. So things like the angle and the base, the planting of the foot changes based on velocity. And so you're able to then calculate what speed was the person moving when they exited the crime scene. And you can see clearly the other evidence is fabricated. So uh, you do have to take all of the physical environmental factors in, as well as the individual person's <laughs> factors. Many of these culprits that are uh, apprehended later in time may be more morbidly obese and suffering the effects of systemic disease. So we know all these variables will impact, say, on mobility, um, osteoarthritis, gait parameters and so forth. Because you now have um, treatments for certain types of arthritis, osteoarthritis especially, and you can have joint fusions. You can have pins and plates put in tarsal metatarsals in, in the long bones in the feet. And that is going to definitely change a foot pattern. So does that create more challenges for you or does it actually make it clearer for you? Makes it much clearer. It's a, a really interesting case that I worked on. Again, another cold case uh, in New South Wales. A 20-year-old boy was murdered after a night drinking um, in Sydney. Uh, He was heading home. He was accosted by another man who brutalised him, hit him across the back of the head. He went down, hit the footpath, and he was dead pretty well instantly. The wallet was taken so there was the boy's wallet was stolen and the perpetrator had blood on his shoes. So he immediately took his shoes off and stole the footwear from the boy he'd just murdered. The offender ran down the road, took the shoes that he committed the crime in, which were his, and threw them up on an awning to try and get rid of the, the evidence. So the police pretty are pretty switched onto this kind of thing. They know we'll go and check the rubbish bins, we'll check the um, sewage lines, we'll check the gutters, and they checked uh, the awnings, and they were able to recover the footwear. Now this was back in about late two thousands, and they were just starting to work with national DNA databases, 
And anyway, um, the perpetrator of the crime some eight years later was up in northern Queensland and he had stolen a push bike after a drunken binge. This was eight years later. Police pulled the man over and said, hey, listen, whose bike's this? And he said, oh, so I pinched it. And that was a low enough threshold due to the changes in law to be able to swab his DNA from his cheek. So they swabbed the DNA from the cheek and they put it in the database, the national database back in 2008. Bang. It had a hit with the pair of shoes that had been discarded on the awning in the murder some seven, eight years later. So I got a call on that one and said, Paul, this DNA stuff is pretty new. Um, you know, we we understand what we're doing. However, we know it's going to be challenged pretty heavily in the court. And getting back to your um, issues about environmental exposure and all these other variables they were concerned about, did an analysis on the footwear and there was so much unique identification in and around the osteoarthritis that you just described. One joint, the big toe joint, had a disease in it called hallux limitus. It's where the osteoarthritis really develops within the joint structure. So the sagittal plane movement, the up and down movement, becomes restricted. And of course, that significantly alters the wear pattern. And again, it was asymmetrical, like you had pointed out before. The left and the right weren't working the same. And it was really apparent in the footwear that this was the case. So when the police said, we, we've got our suspect, what do you want to do? Same process. Top to bottom analysis of a series of the individual's footwear. You know, they get a court order for that. And they, they bring it in and we were able to even look at him physically and look at x-rays and the hallux limitus and pressure studies and bang. It was no, no question. I think he got 20 years for that. So irrespective of the DNA... You'd covered your bases by confirming that this is the same foot that's made the same impressions in these shoes. Correct. And, you know, we're able to produce really good quality evidence in the courts that a lay person can look at and really understand. So, you know how you mentioned about the, the osteoarthritis in the joint? Not only do you get that, you actually get some frontal plane rotation of the, the phalanx of the hallux. So there's actually rotating around 15, 20 degrees. Now that was present in one side and not the other. And it was just as clear as that. So you're able to show the x-rays and the angles and, you know, blind Freddy can see uh, what you're looking at there. And of course, the DNA really is the consolidating factor in the matter. You'd assume that actually, I've never thought about it before today, to be completely honest, how much DNA would be contained on our shoes of our, of our own DNA? When you think about laces, um, if you every time you put your heel in, you're pretty much scraping, even with or without socks. You've got contact with your skin, rubbing, perspiring, shedding skin. Not everyone wears socks with their shoes. There must be an overabundance of our own DNA in our shoes. There are well-known areas within the shoe that are immediately biopsied. So, for example, if you recover some shoes, you lift up the tongue of the shoe in, say, some footwear, underneath where the laces are, bang, you go straight in with a punch biopsy. And you pop that in um, and you assay it and, and you can extract DNA. What's really interesting, and, you know, criminals try this all the time, 
these aren't my shoes, they're Joe's shoes. You know, I left them on the porch and somebody's pinched them. Well, you know, you, you get your DNA and your other physical evidence around the footwear to dispute that claim. But when you do come across two or three lots of different DNA uh, within the footwear, then you've got to look at it a slightly different way. So as you probably recall, when they first discovered diabetes, way back, you know, men were in the men's urinal and, you know, the splashes would come out and, you know, the, the, the sugar within the urine would consolidate on the outer of the shoe. So you get this honey sweet crustaceans on the shoe. So it was part of the evidence that, you know, the hyperglycemia was identifiable on the outside of the shoe, as is the case with multiple lots of DNA. So you do need a process of exclusion and probability when you have multiple DNA there. And as you can appreciate, say, in homeless situations or more vulnerable communities, <laughs> they may not be wearing their original shoes. They may well be wearing someone else's. There have been cases where people have actually worn larger shoes, like you've said, tried to stage a scene and stuffed the shoes with, say, newspaper so that then they can walk around. Do you get any indication that the person is not of the accurate weight and height depending on their shoe print? Um, the answer is yes. In that circumstance, you usually get to a point where the footprint evidence is inconclusive. You know, it has truly been confounded. Now, if you look at most assaults on service stations, 7-Elevens, you'll see the guys have got, you know, scarves around their heads, wearing black clothes, baggy stuff. Sometimes they're wearing shoes, not always. There's, you know, a real attempt to disguise. And a number of cases we've been working on, uh, that's been the situation where there's been CCTV footage of a perpetrator going in uh, to a crime scene, committing a crime and then coming out and it's captured on CCTV footage. You'll see that quite regularly. And you can interestingly tell when there are attempts to conceal identity, but there are other parts of the footage where they are unaware that they're being observed and they're actually being recorded. So you've actually got the two different gate patterns there. So obviously, as you're entering into a crime area, you've got a high index of suspicion that you're going to be filmed. But when you're a block and a half down the road, uh, you think you're away from it, and then the footage comes in and we analyse the differences. Well, thank you so much for your contribution and for talking to us today. Oh, my pleasure, and thank you very much for the invitation. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly. 